7, as soon as you turn there, uh, we will get into lesson number 8 in the study in the life of a disciple. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, we love you. Thank you for bringing back together. I know because of the weather on Sunday, uh, we missed many of the people that are here uh, this morning. And Father, each and every service is important to us, and each and every service offers some things that uh, no other service could offer. And you've brought us together once again around thy word. I pray that we'd be led by your spirit. And Father, I pray, help us to teach some, uh, learn some truths tonight that will change us. Convict us. Help us to be a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to learn tonight, not just fill in blanks. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. The life of a disciple, true discipleship, uh, is more than a course. Uh, in just a couple of weeks, we'll be over this course. All right? This is the continued course. is a discipleship course. I pray beyond when this course is finished, no matter what you've learned and what we've learned, that we have bound ourselves to be a discipler of the Lord Jesus Christ and for the Lord. It's more than a course. It's a commitment to follow Christ. And here's a big word, unconditionally. Uh, you think about this, and uh, I've got kind of a boring life outside of church. I don't do a lot. I probably should. I enjoy uh, sporting and fishing and hunting and all of that stuff. I enjoy I just don't do much of it. But so because of that, I follow, if it's got a ball, I follow it, except for golf. I don't think golf is sport. Uh, but anyway, uh, you think about this, whether it's NBA or NFL or NHL or whatever, MLB, whatever it might be, uh, a famous matter of fact, the Rockies just signed one of the richest, uh, one of the Rockies, third baseman, uh, Nolan Arenado, just signed one of the wealthiest contracts in MLB history, $260 million, I think it, uh, it was. You think about this, they have a contract Think about, you know, if somebody, if an employer would say, if you work for me, what, does anybody remember how many years it was? Was it eight, Brother Anthony, or Brother Andrew, nine? Was it eight or nine years? I think it was, wasn't it? Eight or nine years. Huh? Do you think that if an employer said, hey, you work for us for nine years, I'll give you $260 million. That's not your endorsements. Don't you think, oh, I'll give you all nine years. But in his contract, it says, I have a no trade clause. And I can opt out after three years. Too many, I say this to a lot of Christians, serve God with no contract. I'm not opting out. I'm in, and I'm going to stay in. And so we're going to study about that tonight. Let me remind you of some things. Jesus had multitude of followers, correct? How many did he feed at one time? 5,000, that's just men. That's not women, that's not kids, that's just men. Uh, some Bible expositors have put that crowd at a minimum of 20,000. Could have been as high as 30,000. So he had thousands or many followers, and yet he had 120 in the upper room. He had 12 disciples. There were three that were with him praying, Peter, James, and John in the Garden of Gethsemane, and there were zero at the cross. You see, the closer we get to the Lord, the smaller the crowd gets. We're going to look at what that dedication looks like. And so don't let that surprise you uh, about that's what's going to happen. 
during Christ's ministry on earth. Here's what we're saying in the next page. He had multitude of people who followed him but, and many who believed on him, but few people were willing to follow him unconditionally. I would say this to you. It's still the same today. Still the same today. You think about this if you've been with us on some of the Saturday soul morning visitation. Is this not commonplace to knock on somebody's door and you, you begin to invite them to church and they'll say something like this, I used to go to church or I'm a child of God, I'm a Christian, but I haven't been in church. I got mad at somebody in the church or the pastor or whatever. And I left. And for years they haven't been back. So it's no different in Christ's day than it is today. Uh, certainly the crowd gets smaller and smaller. Look at Luke chapter 14 there in your notes. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and his mother and his wife and his children uh, and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now stop for a second. How many of you love your mother and father? Okay. How many of you, if you have a, a brother or a sister, you love your brothers and sisters? That verse is really hard for you then, isn't it? Do I really have to hate my mom, hate my dad? Understand this. This is Christ is comparing. What he's saying is, the love you have for me must seem like hate in comparison to the love you have for your wife or your mom or dad or brother or sister. He's not saying hate your mom or dad. We know that because the Bible tells us uh, watch this, Hebrew, uh, uh, Ephesians 5, uh, verse 25 says this, what men? Husbands, what your wives? Love your wife. So how can he tell us here, hate them, and in Ephesians he says love them. So we know there's, there's not a contradiction in Scripture. He's saying this, I want you to look at the comparison of how you love me and how you love everybody else. I'm going to say this to you, if it hasn't already, when you and I get saved, and we begin to follow the Lord, not as a follower, but as a committed follower and disciple, then what uh, comes to place a lot of times is we have to choose between our dedication to God and our dedication to the Lord. Is that not true? That's true. Now, look at this, if you would. In this lesson, we'll look at what the life of a disciple looks like. Being a true disciple is a process of surrendering daily, battling sin in our lives, and living a lifestyle that is pleasing to God. Now, here's the questions we hope to answer. What does it mean to fully follow Jesus? As someone said, salvation is the miracle of a moment. Discipleship is the process of a lifetime. Right in the margin there, we're not going to go into this. Our salvation has three parts. The first part is justification, a one-time act, whereby we are made righteous, one-time act. All right, then sanctification is a continual process whereby the nature of our Savior is instilled in us. That's what. And then one day glorification will be just like Jesus when we get our new body. All right, so justification, one-time act. Sanctification, a continuing process. Is God still working on you? He should be, all right? Look at the blanks to fill in here. Lesson 8, a disciple is fully surrendered to God. Uh, now, I'm going to quote Romans 12, 1 there. It says this, I beseech you, therefore. Somebody tell me, uh, male or female, what the word beseech means. Beg. I beg. 
Paul saying, I beg you, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your what? Bodies, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, watch this. Notice the three truths about surrender in Romans 12. Number one is motivated by God's mercy. Is God merciful to you? There's nothing you and I can do to repay God for saving us and forgiving us of our sins. So he asked something very small. He said, give me your body. Dedicate your body to me. I talk to Christian teens all the time, and they say, if I want to do it, I, want, I can do it. It's my body. No, it's not. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. All right? So here's what it looks like. It is motivated by God's mercy. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. In the realization of, God, of great mercy, God's great mercy, to show us, to compel us to surrender our lives back to him. Every one of us are going to fight this battle, and it doesn't end. It doesn't end this side of heaven. I thought this, Brother Bill and, and Brother Stephen and some of you men, uh, Brother Josh and others that are full-time in full-time, I thought about this. I thought when I gave in, when I was a young man and didn't really wanted to, didn't want to go into full-time ministry, I wanted to be a contractor and build houses, and when I gave in to that, I thought God would get off my back. You know what? All throughout my life, God is asking for some more surrender. Surrender again. Surrender again. Surrender again. And so he will be in your life. Look at this. First century readers of this passage would have immediately connected the word sacrifice. Imagine this. When you and I come to church, our offering is in our wallet or our purse. Not our purse. I don't have a purse. All right? Your purse. <laughs> we bring an offering. How did they bring an offering? What did they bring? Somebody tell me. An animal. A lamb might be an auction, maybe two turtle, uh, turtle dove, uh, whatever it is. And they realized tabernacle or temple, they would see the priest kill that sacrifice and put it on the altar. They realized what? When they said here, Paul said, that I, you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Too many Christians get up off the altar of sacrifice to God. Now, look at this. Here's a, uh, it is a complete, it is complete. There's a blank on 159 to fill in. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. That means this, very simply, your goals, your entertainment, your dreams, your career, your marriage, your kids, give it to God. Billy Sunday said it this way. Don't make God pry open the hands of greed to take from you what he chooses to take. Just say, Lord, it's yours. You, you gave it to me. You can have it back or you can have it at any time. It should be every Christian's desire to have Jesus not only as our Savior, but also as our Master or our Lord. Look at the second blank here. It is reasonable. Not only is it complete, but it's reasonable. 
which is your reasonable service. Jesus gave his life for us. Giving ours back to him is the least we can do. Matthew 10, 37 and 38, he that loveth father or mother. Now see, you say, preacher, how do you know the verses we read there in Luke are talking about comparative love? Because Matthew talks about the same passage. He that loveth father or mother, what's the next word? More than me is not worthy of me. Let me tell you, this will hit us at any time. I was the last of my brothers to leave the house. My dad never sat down with me and talked to me about his business venture. But he owned a tire shop in Fountain, Colorado. I worked with him in that tire shop. When I would go to church, that burden to go train for ministry got heavier and heavier. One day after church, I told my dad, I said, Dad, I'm going to be leaving in a couple weeks. I'm going to Bible college. He said this. He said, son, I thought you'd take over my business. I said, Dad, God has called me to go to college. You see what I'm saying? That sometime in your life and mine, a choice is going to have to be made. Are you going to follow the Lord or follow family or Loved ones or friends. Jesus gave us his life, uh, giving ours back to him as least we can do. Jesus made full surrender. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He must be first place in our lives. Page 160. A disciple battles sin and the flesh. This is what we stopped about a little bit on the first congregational hymn. He battles sin in the flesh. One of the most discouraging realizations for a new Christian is that they still sin. One of the scariest things that I've ever heard an altar worker say in our church in, in New Mexico, I worked the altar. I went down just like Brother Fine does, and, and we had a church, I think, 350 at that time. I'd worked the altar, and we'd call an altar worker, somebody come up. Somebody came to be saved. And I remember getting an altar worker with him and said, this gentleman came to be saved and I want you to deal with him. And I just went back working the altar. I kind of was listening to see, is that man going to trust Christ? The man trusted Christ and I heard the altar worker say to him, now the nice thing about once you get saved, you're never going to have any trials anymore. True or false? False. And one of the biggest trials we have is that our battle with this, with this flesh and with the world and with Satan himself. You know, parents, let me say something. Some of you who are young married in here but not presently have children, if you choose to, and God blesses you with children, let me promise you what will happen. It happens to every parent. God automatically puts in the heart of that little boy or girl to love their mom and daddy automatically. Every baby has it. Every boy has it. Every girl has it. We can destroy it, okay? And when you and I, John 3, get saved and born into the family of God, there is a love in our heart to please our Heavenly Father. And when we sin and we don't do His will, it breaks our heart. Sin begins in the form of a temptation, a desire that draws us away from God. And we're not going to have time to turn there. James 1.13 says, 
it talks about the stages of sin. Every man is sin when he's drawn away of his own lust. Now, that word lust is not necessarily sensual. The word lust in James means a strong desire that is not God-given. Okay? It could be lust for money. It could be lust for popularity. So Satan knows what you and I have a strong desire for, and that desire will take us away. He baits a trap with that desire. For some, it's drugs and alcohol that Satan baits a trap because you have a desire for it. Now watch it, and it says this, when lust hath conceived, watch this, what it brings forth, sin. And when sin hath conceived, it bringeth forth lust, sin, death. He baits the trap in our life with our strong desires that we have. And each of us are different. Look at these three. There are three main sources of temptation. That's a blank to fill in. Number one, the world. When we think of the world, we're talking about the world's systems, philosophies, and practices. Anybody, I guess I'm, I'm a political junkie. Anybody know what's happening in Washington, D.C. today? The Dems are upside down. Because the Dems elected three Muslim women that hate the Jews. And they can't help themselves. Every time they, they, they say something about the Jews, they slander them. So now a resolution was passed as they were trying to pass a resolution to condemn anti-Semitic speech. But they couldn't come together on it. The world has always hated God's children and always will. And that's why I'm going to say this to you. As much as America has turned her back on God, I honestly believe that God's mercies are over our land because we've never turned our back on Israel. One of the things that scared me, and I'm not trying to be political tonight, but one of the things that scared me with our former president is this. He too did not like the Jewish people. Bibi Netanyahu never had a state dinner in the White House. He was ushered in the back door. And it made me fear, not because a man that I would not align with politically was in the White House. I understand the Jews are the apple of God's eye, right? So we better be careful. The world system around us uh, can lead us astray. Look at John, 1 John 2. Love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So we have the world, and then number two, the flesh. We looked at Galatians chapter 5 and 17 last week. Before you and I were saved, your mind and mine and will and emotions were trained to live apart from God. I say to you, and I'm dating myself. None of you ever heard this. Sydney and Andrew and Nathan and Sydney and Karen and all you whippersnappers, Taysom for sure. You remember, somebody help me with this. Barbara, maybe you and Loretta and some of you, Donald and Barb possibly, Marvin and Agnes. Do you ever remember the Burger King commercial from way back when? Hold the pickles, hold the lettuce, special orders don't upset us. All we ask is that you let us have it your way. 
That's what Satan says. <laughs> Have it your way. Whatever your flesh wants, give it to it. Just have it your way. Say this to you. And when we get saved, the flesh does not die. Heard any Christians that have fallen? So the world certainly is against us and an enemy. The flesh must be crucified each and every day. Galatians 5 talks about the, the outcome of the flesh. Number three, the devil. Satan actively and persistently targets the child of God with temptation. You're going to be tempted tomorrow. It's going to look different for each of us. But there's a, I remember this. Can you imagine this, Brother Bill? And Miss Linda, I don't know if I ever told you this. When I went to Rio Grande Baptist Church, to, I had met the pastor a couple days before we actually moved there. I think, Miss Rogers, I'm guessing, mid-60s, Pastor Wood was when we moved there. Let me describe Pastor Wood. Tall, slender, bald-headed, glass eye, walked with a limp. When I got there, he bring me in his office, and he said, Brother Gordon, I'm going to tell you something. You will never counsel a woman alone. Do you understand that? I already got that, preacher. I learned that a long time ago. He said, do you know that I believe God sends to every church one lady, her only job is to make the pastor fall. And he told me about a lady in the church. you got to be kidding me. Called him at 2 o'clock in the morning and said, I've got a crisis. And, and lo, she, the preacher thought she had a crisis. So he gets himself ready, goes over to her house, opens up the door, and she's in a negligee. I don't know what your temptation is going to look like tomorrow. But you're going to be tempted. And the purpose of that temptation is to cause you not to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at this, if you would, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. This is very important. Temptation is not a sin, correct? Because if it were, our, our Savior had sinned, and we know he didn't. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, There's no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful. He'll make a way of escape. Can you put something in your margin? When I was studying for this lesson, this just came back to mind. I don't know where I got it, but it's true. When temptation sets the house on fire, God always has a back door to escape. Isn't that good? When temptation sets the house on fire, God always has a back door to escape. The devil made me do it. No, he didn't because he can't. He can tempt you. He can tempt me. And I can give in to his temptation, but he cannot make us do anything. When temptation sets the house on fire, there's always a back door of escape. All right, here's the first word in 162. Use the word of God. Satan hates the Bible. When Jesus was tempted in Matthew chapter number 4, how did he, how was he victorious over temptation? It is written. It is written, that, uh, now watch it, that's the shield of faith, wherewith he shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. It is written, memorize the scripture and, and defeat Satan with using the word of God. Look at this, Psalm 119.11, thy word have I hid in my heart, 
that I might not sin against thee. Somebody said it this way. Either the Bible will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the Bible. One will happen, the other will not. Remember, here's the next blank. Remember, you don't have to sin. Remember, Titus 2, 11 and 12, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us, now here's that, denying. I was in a car dealership today having oil changed. Got to talking to a man sitting next door. He was a, he was Brother Lou, you might even know him. I don't remember what his last name was, but... He was, for 20-some years, he was the technical uh, superintendent for the public schools in, uh, down in the Walsenburg area. He said this. He said, we got a new superintendent. And I asked him because I had an iPad, and I always carry my iPad to study with or, or journal or do whatever. And, and I said to him, I said, I'm not a tech guy, but when you did the technology for the schools, what work was it, Mac or PC? He said, it's all PC. He said, until we got a new superintendent, and he wanted to make a splash, so everybody in school above kindergarten got a brand new iPad. Now, here's what the man told me. He said, we put filters on them so that when they're at school, they can't go places on that iPad that they shouldn't go. But he said, what we found out was when they go home, mom and daddy are not attached. They're detached. And he said, you'd be shocked, the fifth and sixth graders. He said, it wasn't the, it wasn't the high school. It wasn't even the junior high school. He said, it was middle school students that were navigating and going places on their school-issued iPad that they should not go. Can I say this to you? When you look at that, to avoid temptation. That's the next blank to fill in. Avoid temptation when possible. Sometimes we set ourselves up for temptation by making it easy to sin. The Bible calls this making provisions for the flesh. Some of you are surprised, weren't you? I, I think when we, or somewhere, we showed a clip of Lester Roloff. Oh, I read, I read to you what he wrote me as a young preacher boy. And he said this, don't ever let a television in the home. Kind of harsh, isn't it? <laughs> I don't think my wife and I had a television until I don't remember how old the kids were. I had a good friend in Bible college, and his dad was a faithful, godly pastor. Didn't have a television in the home. All the time the kids were growing up, and sure as the world to see, he was the last kid to leave the house. When he came home for Christmas, there was a big screen TV in the home. He said, you hypocrite. He said, no, television is not good for you guys. It's okay for mom and I. <laughs> I'm just saying, whether it's an iPad or television, whatever it might be, if it draws you away, you should be willing to avoid it. Here's another blank there. Avoid ungodly friendships. If there are particular people who will lead you into a place of temptation, don't spend time with them. Can I say this to you? Courtship is a relationship. You know what we tell our young men and young ladies? Tell our young men this. Tell our young ladies this. I'll tell you how you know if you're right for each other. If you bring each other closer to the Lord, closer to mom and daddy, you're right for each other. 
if you're dating young fellas, a young lady, and she makes you further away from God and further away from, from your parents, I don't care what you think about her. She's not right for you. Get myself in trouble. All right, look at page number 163. Ask for help. Ask for help. James 5.16, confess your faults one to another. Pray for one another. Can I say this to you? I've had people before tell me, especially like as we gear up now for Lord's Supper, that we ought to publicly confess sin. Today, I think, for the Catholic folks, first day of Lent. Today, you might have seen some people going around with ashes on their head. I think today was first day. And that, you know what? Not that we give up something, but we should be willing. If God, if uh, there's people in our church even presently that believe this, that we ought to have a service that's dedicated to nothing more than confessing sin. I'm going to say this to you, and please follow me. Public sin must be confessed publicly. Private sin should be confessed privately. I've seen this happen, I don't know how many times in ministry. Boy, God gets a hold of our heart. We're in the middle of a revival. And somebody comes down and they get right with God and they say, Preacher, can I say something? And oh, man, you always worry about what they say. And they'll say this. And they'll stand up and they'll say something like this. I want to ask Brother Smith to forgive me because I've hated your guts all the time we were in church. Brother Smith didn't know you hated his guts. Go to Brother Smith privately and say, Brother, my heart hasn't been right with you. All right, so look at this. Keep, uh, and watch this. Ask for help. Keep short accounts with God. The moment the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, confess it to God. Very quickly, we must, we've got to go quickly. Can I say this to you, whether you write it in the margin or not, this will help you. There's only two types of sin in the life of a Christian. I'm going to say these to you. Confessed. Confessed sin breaks sin's power. Can anybody give me a verse on confession of sin? Brother Stephen, give me one. Okay, let's say it together. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and do what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess sin breaks sin's power. All right? That's one type of sin in the life of a Christian. Number two, condoned. It's sin I'm just going to live with. I know it's wrong. I know I'm not living right, but I'm not going to give it up right now. I'm not going to give it over. Condoned sin makes me unusable vessel to God. You're still saved. You're still on your way to heaven, but it breaks. I mean, it doesn't break sin's power. That sin is kind of like the pieces of a rope that, that get together and the more, the more that they, you put around, pretty soon that rope becomes unbreakable. All right, look at this. Yield to the Holy Spirit. Yield to the Holy Spirit. I want you to read something very quickly, and stay with me if you would. The latter part, I want us to read this together, the last full sentence on page 163. Are you ready? Let's read it together. Satan tries to wear us down by reminding us of our past sins and telling us that it is no use to keep fighting. How many of you say, preacher, that's true? Okay, now follow me. Either before we got, this is not in your books. I just, God taught me this years ago, and I try to share it as much as I can. 
since you've been saved and since I've been saved, we've all, anybody, since you've been saved, you've lived just a perfect holy life. None of us have. You've sinned, you've faltered, so have high and failed. Now watch this. The devil is the accuser of the brethren. So what he wants to do, let me quote Romans 8, 1. Say it with me as I go, as I start it. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in. So if you're saved and you're feeling condemnation, I'm going to say this to you. It is, that one's not real good. Condemnation is never from God if you're a Christian. Never. But you feel it. So where is it coming from? Coming from Satan. He's the accuser of the brethren. He wants to condemn you. And the purpose of condemnation is to drive a wedge between you and God. Get it further and further away. Here's condemnation. You say you're a good Christian. Look at how you lived this week. You didn't weren't in your Bible. You didn't pray. You didn't go to church. Look at what you looked at. You shouldn't have done that. That's condemnation. And it's meant to drive a wedge between you and God so that you don't get, you get further and further away from God. So, but let me ask you this. According to 1 John, do all Christians sin? If we say that we sin not, we lie and the truth is not in us, 1 John says. If we say we do not sin. So when we sin, what is condemnation is sent by Satan to drive a wedge between God and myself. When we sin, what is that emotion we feel from God? It's not condemnation ever. God does not condemn his own. Who said that? Was that you, Andrew? Conviction. What is the difference in conviction and condemnation? Let me give it to you. Brother Stephen, quote it. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Convi condemnation speaks like this. You're unworthy. The church elected you to be a deacon. Look at your life. You're a pastor. You're an associate pastor. You drive a bus. You work with kids. Look at your life. That's condemnation. Never from God. Here's conviction. Now that wasn't right. I want you to confess it to me. And I'll forgive you. That's conviction. And the purpose of conviction is to draw us nearer to the Lord. Can anybody think of a verse? Draw nigh to God and he will do what? Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. So God is saying, listen, I don't condemn you. That's the work of Satan. There is therefore now no condemnation. I will convict you. But the purpose of conviction is to make you a usable vessel and draw you closer to myself. Once and for all, what we should do as a child of God, quit letting Satan convict us, I mean condemn us of sins we've confessed. Those sins are under the blood. Look at this quickly in your notes. Satan tries to wear us down by reminding us of our past sins and telling us that the fight is not worth fighting. All right, look at page 164. A disciple lives a sanctified life. Somebody tell me real quick, you can fill in that blank. Sanctified means what? Set apart. 
Now watch this. It really means more than that. If you'll study in the New Testament, the word sanctify means set apart for holy use. Say it with me. Sanctification is set apart for holy use. Listen, Sydney, Karen, Brother Stephen, Mrs. Fine, Rachel, Brother Josh, Miss Sarah. Do you see those set-apart kids in Bible college? They all live for God, don't they? They're set apart. I'm saying that most of them do. You can be set apart. You can, your hair can be cut like a man's hair ought to be cut. You can be dressed uh, however a lady ought to be dressed. You can look at that. I don't smoke. I don't chew. I don't go with the girls that do. But be as rotten as can be in the heart. So separation or sanctification isn't just set apart to be set apart. It's set apart for holy use. Look at this, if you would, please. So that's the word sanctified means set apart. There's a blank to fill in. No, the second blank, we survey what God? A holy God. Be ye holy, for I am holy. They gave this. They gave this. You see in the notes there, do you have a favorite mug? Before you drink from that mug, you make sure it's clean and prepared for you. We, we had a staff had a meeting last week. And we went to our favorite coffee shop, and it was plum packed. So one of our staff members, I will not mention to you, said, I've, I've got a good place I've been wanting to try. Let's go try this coffee shop. And it's kind of a neat concept. You, you don't pay for anything you have there. You just walk in, and it's eight cents a minute. It is. You can eat their cookies, eat their fruit, drink their coffee, drink their water, have your meeting, eight cents a minute. I thought that was pretty neat. Except they have all of these mugs out. You're supposed to, I think, aren't you, Brother Stephen? You're supposed to wash your own dish and put it back, I think. But here we get our coffee cup. We're going through. And I look, I turn my coffee cup over, and there's a ring on the inside. Ooh. I put it back. I think Brother Josh and I got there first. And here comes Brother Stephen. Guess what mug you picked up? <laughs> I said, no, Brother Stephen, you can't use that mug. It's got a ring around it. Huh? You put that mug back? Look what the Lord says here. We serve a holy God. God chooses, uh, chooses to use people who have set themselves apart for him uh, from sin and to his use. The last blank to fill in there. God calls us to live holy lives. The Bible says in all manner of conversation, it's not talking about our speech, but our manner of lifestyle, we're to be distinct children of God. Can somebody listen to you and tell when I was talking to this man? I, I, I didn't purposely do that, but he would talk about something. I'd say, yeah, we have some folks in the church, and we have some people in the church, and we have some people in the church. I think probably after I said that to him 10 times, he said, what do you do? Oh, I'm a pastor of a church. Can somebody get around you for a little bit of time and tell that you're, there's something different about you, that you're a Christian? All right. Look at this, if you would. Look at page 165. One of the key areas of holiness, and, and we're not going to have time to delve into this tonight, but sexual purity. We live in a culture that glorifies immorality. 
many new Christians have lived in sexual sin or wrestle with temptations that are of a sexual nature. And can I say this to you, and ladies, help, I'm going to help you with this tonight, especially young ladies. But even if you're presently married and, and, and however, at whatever point you got saved, do you understand God-given desires that the sexual desire in a man is one of the strongest desires God gives a man? It's just natural. It's just normal. And men, do you understand if that's the case, and it is, how we ought to protect ourselves? I remember years ago, a pastor that I just love dearly, Brother Barliament in Grand Junction, Colorado, asked me if I'd come and hold their um, marriage seminar. They have a year and had, goodness gracious, 50-some couples there. And I really wrestled. There was a time when, one time in those sessions where Mrs. Rogers spoke to the ladies and I spoke to the men, and I really wrestled with that because God had, had given me something that we taught here on sexual purity. And can I say this to you? We're always really hard on the ladies. Come down the aisle and white. Come down the aisle and white. Hey, guys, you should come down the aisle pure. But I, I remember I wrestled with it. I pulled the pastor aside and I said, Brother, I, I, I've got another lesson planned, but this is really the one the Lord laid on my heart. And it was all about how to keep sexually pure, even as a married man, as a, as a Christian man. And he said, that's the message we want. And after we left that about an hour-long message, he said, Pastor Rogers, thank you for being willing to bring that. You see... We just had a youth pastor fell into sin with another lady, married lady in the church. And so much so that he said this, if you're a male and you serve on our staff, you are not allowed to have a smartphone. Now, some of you say that's a little much. We live in a day and age that whether it's a smartphone or a, a tablet or that type of thing. And this is something, men, that we have. Now, let me, say, let me encourage you with this. Out of that lesson came I had some things I didn't know of. One, of, and there may be many more, we heard about covenant eyes. That a man would tell his wife, I'm going to install this on all my electronic devices so that every website I go to, it sends a notification to your phone. Fellas, be willing to do that. Your wife should have, or the young lady you're dating, should have the passwords to your phone or your computer. I know this kind of teaching is not, is not really welcomed in our churches. I believe this. A pastor's job is twofold. To warn against sin and then to put back the life of those who didn't heed the warning. Let's look at this as we close. God's grace develops holiness. God's grace develops holiness. Okay, so here's the application on page 167. Make a definite decision to fully surrender to God. It's got to be a decision. God, I'm yours. Number two, another blank to fill in. Daily ask God to search your heart. Ask God to search your heart. Lastly, on page 167, examine your life. 
can other people see the distinction of God's holiness in you? Are there habits or activities or associations that you need to change? To become a disciple of Christ means the crowd's going to get smaller and smaller the, the stronger my dedication to God gets. Be willing to pay that price. I think, Lucy, you'll remember, and maybe, Lucy, you're the only one here that remember other than our family. Little tiny, tiny church when we just had a handful of people on the north side, little crumbling building. And lo and behold, a man, Middle Eastern man, how many children did Brother Modir have, sweetheart? Do you remember? Four children. Just a beautiful family. Middle Eastern man, came from Lebanon, came down and joined the church, he and his wife. What faithful people they were. One day I was out visiting with him, and I said, Brother Chris, tell me about your life. He said, my dad is one of the most famous surgeons in Lebanon. I said, you're kidding. You live a very modest life. He said, oh, I'm not his son anymore. I said, what do you mean? He said, see, when a Muslim converts to Christianity, it's over. I said, come on, you're kidding. He said, no, no, no. He said, if I, I got my dad's phone number. If I called him, it would sound something like this. Oh, I'm sorry. You must have the wrong number. I used to have a son named Chris, but he died. If that's what it take, took to become a Christian and follow Christ, would you pay that price? Because I say this to you, nobody will ever, my preacher used to say it this way, everybody on their deathbed either says, would to God I had, or thank God I did. I promise you, if you decide to dedicate your life to surrender to him fully, to be a disciple of Christ, you'll never, if the Lord tarries his coming on your deathbed, said, I'm sorry I did that. I don't know how many on a deathbed I've heard this. Preacher, I wish I'd have sold out a long time ago. I wish I'd have given my all to the Lord a long time ago. So this is what a disciple looks like. This is, and let me say this to you. Can I remind you this? Now, we're not going to sign you up. We've had so many folks get saved recently that we're having a hard time discipling them all. That's why I felt like the Lord told us, bring the church together, go through the discipleship. Now, let me say this to you. I pray if, if you've been saved for a length of time, but this is the first time you've gone through this program, I would pray that once you go through this and understand it, that there will be some times Pastor or Brother Fine or Brother Rogers or somebody will come to you and say, listen, we have a lady that got saved. Would you be willing one-on-one -on -one to disciple her? Or a man, would you be willing to decide? And then we'll provide the materials. How wonderful it is to take an hour a week, take your Bible, open up, and teach a brand new Christian the things we're learning right now. Father, we pray that you dismiss us with your love tonight. I thank you for the tenderness of your people. Now, Father, I pray that you'd help us, each and every one of us, being your child, saved, and on our way to heaven, may we examine our life. May we be willing to ask the hard question. May we, like David, say, search me, O God. Try me and know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. May we also pray, as did David, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy